The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Amen. The word of God upon which we meditate this afternoon is the first reading from Isaiah chapter 40. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, we sometimes refer to them as the watchwords of the Reformation, the solas. Some speak of five solas, perhaps we're more used to speaking of three solas. Sola gratia, sola scriptura, sola fide. The Lord caused the truth of the gospel to sound forth through the Reformation so that the message that we are saved, sola gratia, by grace alone, without any merit or worthiness on our part, that we're saved, sola fide, through faith alone, without our works. And the Reformers emphasized, sola scriptura, that the scriptures alone are the source of doctrine. So which of the three solas is the focus of this service? The observant among us saw the cover of the service folder. Some are cheating and looking now. <laughs> the word of the Lord stands forever. The observant noticed the first hymn we sang was, Preserve Your Word, O Savior. The hymn of the day, The Holy Word of God Endures Forever. The choir singing, This is My Word. So which of the solas is the focus of the service? I mean, I don't want to insult your intelligence. It's obvious. Sola gratia. I'm sorry, did I misspeak? I meant to say, I meant to say sola gratia. Maybe I should apologize for asking a trick question and for leading you down the path thinking that I wanted you to say sola scriptura while I was thinking, no, it's sola gratia. And, and here's why. The scriptures do not proclaim the scriptures. The scriptures proclaim this glorious message that we sinners are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, without our works. So it's most certainly true that the hymns and the readings all mention the Word of God. But when Luther emphasized sola scriptura, he was doing it because the most important thing the scriptures do is proclaim a message we would never know if God did not come to us through his Word. So, of course, Luther says, not the papacy, not the traditions of the church, only the scriptures, because the scriptures point us to Christ. Today, as we study this section of Isaiah 40, let's do so with the prayer that the Lord will lead us to confess with joy in every circumstance, in every situation, the word of our God stands forever. You probably don't need me to tell you this, but... Isaiah 40 follows Isaiah 39. Thank you, Captain Obvious. 
But it needs to be said because if Isaiah 40 is going to make any sense at all, you need to know what's happened in Isaiah 39. In that chapter, the Lord has, in a sense, dropped a bomb on his people. He's told the two tribes in the south, commonly called Judah, that they're going to go into captivity in Babylon. It's going to be some time in the future. We know that it's more than 100 years after this. Just like the ten tribes in the north, Israel, had gone into captivity not long before this. Well, you have to know that that's a death sentence for a nation. You go into captivity... You do not come back. Doesn't happen. Can't. The conquering nation swallows up the conquered. So imagine how this sounds in the ears of the people of Judah. Well, I suppose, to be honest, given the horrible spiritual condition of the people of Judah, the vast majority would have dismissed it out of hand. That Isaiah is a Debbie Downer. It's always negative all the time with him. We have the temple of the Lord. We're in Jerusalem. We're Abraham's descendants. This is our land. Not going to happen. There was, however, a small group of people who actually believed what the Lord said. And they heard a death sentence. And you have to know this, too. They were playing connect the dots. They were going to go into captivity not because the Babylonian armies were stronger than the Lord, but because the people had failed. He wanted us to be his treasured possession, his holy nation, his kingdom of priests, and we have failed horribly. And when he responded with grace and forgiveness... We responded with more sin. And finally he has said, enough. I can no longer have this people. And that means the promise to send a descendant of David to conquer the devil and undo his wicked work, that plan is off. And we're doomed. So are our descendants. That's the context in which Isaiah 40 is spoken. God is speaking to that remnant that believes what he has to say and is thinking the worst possible things. We're doomed. There's going to be no Savior. Does that help to explain the abrupt way in which that section of Scripture begins? Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Notice the possessive adjectives. My people. They thought the Lord had divorced them because of their sin. He could have nothing to do with him and, and with them anymore. But he's saying, no, you are my people. And he says, I am your God. A word of grace alone. He's proclaiming salvation by grace alone. This is the word of our God that stands forever Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Now he lays out that message of comfort. He wants proclaimed to his people who are despairing of his love, who don't think there's any chance for them anymore. He says, 
speak tenderly to Jerusalem, literally speak on the hearts of Jerusalem. I want them to know where they stand with me. And now he gives them a three-part message to proclaim. Proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. He's making a statement about the exile. Their exile is going to come to an end. In other words, he was going to do the impossible. No nation ever returned after being taken captive, but God says that's going to happen. And it's interesting to note, he doesn't say, well, this will happen. He says, her heart service has been completed. I mean, it's going to be another 100 plus years before they go into captivity. It's going to be 70 more years after that before they come back from captivity. But he says, it's done. He's teaching them an important lesson. When the Lord speaks, he acts. When he promises, no matter how impossible it seems, he fulfills his promise. The second part of his comfort, proclaim to her that her sin has been paid for. The Lord wasn't just going to, you know, put it underneath the rug. Their sin had to be paid for. These faithful people knew sin was serious business. And he says, that's been paid for. Not by the suffering you're going to experience in exile. That suffering can't do anything. But by the suffering of another. Promised in Isaiah 53, the one on whom the Lord laid the iniquity of all who is pierced for the transgressions of all who is crushed for the iniquities of all. Their sin has been paid for in full. Part three of the comfort. Proclaim to her that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This is not saying, well, you kind of got a double spanking. When you got sent into exile away from your homeland, you guys suffered way more than you should have, so it's all good now. No, they deserve to be executed. The double they receive from the Lord's hand is forgiveness and grace and righteousness and life and status as his children. All of these blessings, every last one of them, undeserved. And did you notice... There was never in this speaking any word of condition, no asterisk, no, you've got to do this kind of conduct. And then we'll talk about maybe top double secret probation. You can sort of be my people. No, he says, all of it is taken care of. I've covered over all of your sins. This message of salvation by grace alone, sola gratia, that is the word of our God that stands forever. And that's our comfort in every trial. The word of our God stands forever. I suppose it's easy enough when life is going well for us to turn to the one who has made our life go so well and confess our sins to him and trust he's going to keep his promise and forgive us our sins. It's nowhere near as easy when life isn't going the way you had it planned. When your plan has been obliterated to turn to God and think he is indeed going to forgive my sins. Instead, we start thinking like the people of Judah. It can't happen. 
you know what? God has finally said enough of these people. I don't know how many times I've heard that same song and dance about that sin they keep on committing. Like, they promise they're not going to do it again, and they do it right again. And it's to people who are in those times of trial and trouble that God says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. All of your sin has been paid for. I consider you my dear child. You are righteous in my sight. Nothing stands against you. That's salvation by grace alone. That is the word of our God that stands forever, and that is our comfort in every trial. Didn't the Lord deal with a despondent Martin Luther the way he dealt with the despondent people of Judah? You know how frustrated he was. He couldn't do enough. He couldn't do enough to find favor with God. He couldn't be sure he had a righteousness that mattered before God. And, and then he read Romans 1.17 that speaks about the gospel revealing righteousness of God. And that passage bothered him horribly. He hated that term, the righteousness of God. Until the Lord led him to realize that in the gospel... The righteousness of God is what he gives to sinners. And when Luther realized salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, the righteousness that counts before God has been given me freely without any works on my part, he said it was as if heaven itself were open to him. And that changed everything. The word of our God stands forever. The Lord who wants his people to be comforted doesn't just sit up in heaven with his fingers crossed and hoping it might happen. He does something about it. He sends messengers. A voice of one calling. In the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plane. This calls to mind what an oriental ruler would do before he ever went to visit an area. He'd send workers out ahead of him. And where there were hills, they would be kind of smoothed over. And where there were big valleys, they'd be filled in so that the area could be traversed easily. Well, the New Testament tells us a primary fulfillment of this prophecy is John the Baptizer who comes and prepares the way of the Lord. And what does he do with the mountains of pride he meets? Well, he knocks them down by a preaching of the sinfulness of human beings. And, and with the valleys of despair, he fills those in with the message of the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. But, but John the baptizer is not the only fulfillment of the prophecy. Every messenger the Lord sends forth fulfills this prophecy, preparing the way for the Lord. And the Lord didn't just send messengers. He sent his own son. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. We hear the glory of the Lord and can't help but think of the, the Lord's special presence with his people as they're traveling to the promised land. There's fire and cloud and smoke. 
Think of his special presence in the tabernacle and the temple. Each of those foreshadowings of the ultimate glory of the Lord when the Son of God takes on flesh and lives among human beings. There, in Christ, God reveals his glory. And God's greatest glory is not that he is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, all of those impressive enough. But the glory of the Lord is this, that the holy God loves sinners, fellowship with sinners. The glory of the Lord is revealed in Christ. But that was not a one-time revelation. Every time that the gospel is proclaimed, the good news that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, every single time the glory of the Lord is revealed. And when God speaks, things happen. You know this from personal experience. God spoke, and you, though dead, were raised to life. You who were his enemy, God made you into his friend. God made you his child. God speaks, and things happen. In the 16th century, the time of the Reformation, the glory of the Lord was revealed when the unconditional gospel was proclaimed. And that unconditional gospel, which the Lord brought to Luther and then sounded forth through Luther, has had an extraordinary impact that you and I know the truth is because God in his grace caused that message to come all the way to us. The Lord who desires his people to be comforted doesn't just send his message one time to us. He sends messenger after messenger, just like he did with the people of Judah. And he even gives them what to say. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The message is a strong and powerful one about human beings. That they may think themselves good, but they are not good. They are mortal. It actually calls to mind what happens in Judah, in Israel, in May. In a very short time, in a matter of a couple of days, a desert scorching wind comes in and all the grass that was alive and beautiful turns brown. And the flowers blooming and blossoming, all of them wilt and fall away. And that's what he says about human beings. Human beings are rather an impressive lot. You think about all the accomplishments, all the achievements, the mastery of this world, the intellectual gifts, the philanthropy, the acts of kindness. The list could go on and on. Human beings are impressive. But God says, grass on their own. He blows and they're done for. Lord summarizes the message in verse 8, the two-part message. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Human beings may try to speak about their goodness, 
try to argue God into letting them be part of his kingdom because of who they are and what they've done. They may even try to manifest it, speak it into existence, but human beings cannot speak the righteousness of God into existence. But God can, and God does. And God did it for you, and God did it for me. He spoke, and things happened. He made us righteous in his sight. He took away our sins and called us his children, all exclusively, entirely, by his grace. And that's the word of our God that stands forever. That is our confidence in life and in death. So God says, you are righteous in his sight. And that's true even when all you can see is your sin. God says that those who believe in him will not die. They do not die, but live. That stands even when our eyes see something entirely different. When God says that he is going to raise our bodies from the dead, glorify them, and make them fit for life in the new heavens and the new earth, that stands, even if it seems impossible to us. The word of our God stands forever. Martin Luther said, that there's a time to hear the law and there's a time to despise the law. We need to hear the law as it points out to us that we are grass, that we are flowers that wilt away, that we can do nothing to produce the righteousness we need to stand before God. But when the law has done its work, when you know your sin, when you know what you deserve, then Say no to the law. Stop listening to the law, Luther says, and listen alone to the mouth and word of Christ as he bespeaks you righteous, as he justifies you, as he declares you to be his child. And so we confess in every time of trial, in life and in death, we confess this with joy. The word of our God stands forever. Amen. Please stand.